1: Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host this program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Molly Gerver. Molly is lecturer in political theory at the University of Essex. She works primarily in moral and political philosophy, with special interests in moral questions pertaining to refugees and immigration. Her latest book is titled The Ethics and Practice of Refugee Reparation. It's published by the University of Edinburgh Press. Moral and political theorists have paid a healthy amount of attention to states' rights to determine who may reside within their territory. Accordingly, there's a large literature on immigration, borders, asylum, and refugees. However, there's very little work on questions concerning how refugees are treated once they've gained access to a new country. And from these questions emerge additional issues concerning the repatriation of refugees. As it turns out, there are several global organizations involved in efforts to make repatriation accessible to those refugees who seek repatriation. However, it's frequently the case that repatriation is dangerous and risky. It's often that refugees have the desire to repatriate only under terms of co- coercion or duress, distinctive moral concerns quickly come into view. Now, to my knowledge, Molly Gerver's new book is the first to systematically address these distinctive moral questions having to do with repatriation. Additionally, the book is one of the few in philosophy that I know of that combines rich conceptual analysis with extensive field work. Molly also makes several distinctive and detailed policy recommendations in light of the moral analyses she provides. So, as usual, we have a lot to talk about. But before we turn to the book, let's begin with its author. Hello, Molly. Hi, hello. How are you today?
0: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Right. Uh, so I first became interested in topics related to refugees when I was an undergraduate student at Hebrew University in Israel, uh, where I've lived. Where I, have, I lived between uh, ages of 14 and 24. Um, and I would volunteer with refugees, organize language classes, I get involved in lobbying for changes in policy. And as I got to know the refugees I was working with, I learned that many wanted to return back to their countries of origin, uh, including Sudan, Eritrea, and South Sudan. Uh, and this became uh, sort of a, a topic that interested me because a lot of those who were returning home seem to be largely forced to return home in many regards. They felt afraid to remain in Israel. They were afraid that they would be detained or without work visas. And so I began interviewing them and asking them about their experiences, both in Israel and later interviewing them in East Africa after they returned. Uh, And so uh, later I moved to the UK for graduate school. I continued the research uh, and I've been in the UK ever since.
1: Fabulous. Um, Why don't we pick up there and um... With the, let's, let's start with the, 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 the big picture that you were just alluding to. Um, so again, um, to my knowledge, yours is the only book that I know of, in philosophy at least, that takes up these distinctive moral questions about repatriation in particular. Um, can you tell us just as you do in the introduction, just give us the sort of like the big picture overview of where the moral sort of questions reside uh, with respect to refugees and repatriation?
0: Right. So let me briefly say where they don't reside. So a lot of debates on immigration ethics focus on cases where refugees are forced by armed agents of the state back to their countries of origin. Uh, There's a lot of debate about when states are permitted to force migrants back home or prevent them from entering. But most refugees are not directly forced to return home. They're compelled to return home often. They feel pressure to return home because they'll be detained if they don't or they'll be without work visas or if they don't. Um, And they often return home with the help of either humanitarian organizations or they pay for their own flights home or they get assistance from friends and family or the UN. And this raises very distinct moral dilemmas from the dilemmas relating to state actions of coercion. Uh, So for example, if a given refugee feels that they will not survive if they remain in a host country. So if there's a Somali refugee in Kenya who feels she doesn't have enough access to nutrition to feed her children and doesn't have access to stable shelter, she might go to the UN and say, I want to return to Somalia, even though there's risks involved, and the UN will pay for her flight back to Somalia. And that raises some serious questions about whether the UN should be doing this, given that This refugee's choice doesn't seem entirely voluntary. And that raises the philosophical question of when an individual should be helped to pursue some end, if the reason they're trying to pursue that end is because they're coerced by a government or some other third party into their decision. And these are questions that I don't think have been addressed in immigration ethics and haven't really been addressed enough in broader discussions on immigration in the media and public discourse and so forth. And there's a host of other major questions that arise. Those questions of information. Uh, if migrants and refugees are returning home because they're misinformed about what to expect, maybe because they haven't lived in their home countries since they were small children or they've never lived there at all because their parents left before they were born, then it's not clear if they were wronged by those who helped them return. It's not clear if they should have been better informed or if it's their own responsibility to find that information. There's questions regarding children. It's not clear if children should be assisted to repatriate to countries that don't provide universal free education and health care. There's questions of reparations. Do refugees who voluntarily return home always have a right to property that they left prior to the time that they fled and so forth? And all of these questions are quite urgent, given that hundreds of thousands of refugees repatriate annually sometimes the numbers go up to millions of refugees annually depending on the particular year depending on what's happening in the international arena but the issue has largely been ignored especially within the the, the, the subject of ethics
1: right so and, and let me uh, let me mention one other um, question or one other site that you say is, is is not one of the questions that you're addressing which is um, uh, the, the question that's usually at the center of of immigration ethics, the the state's right to exclude, uh, who counts as permissibly excludable, uh, that is your account, um, as you say several times in the book, is your, your accounts of the moral questions you're concerned with are supposed to be compatible with any plausible answer to the question of whether the state has a right to exclude and who it may exclude and when and under, and under what circumstances. Is that true?
0: Yes. So I make the assumption throughout the book for simplicity, that an individual has a right to reside in a country if her life and liberty will be at risk if she were to return to her country of origin. And so an individual fleeing a natural disaster or a famine or domestic violence has a right to asylum, assuming the state that gives her asylum has the capacity to accept her. And there's debates about what capacity means exactly, but assuming that a state wouldn't be taking on extremely high costs in providing her asylum, they have a duty to do so. And they would be violating her rights if they detained her rather than giving her a residency visa, for example. Um, and then I build on that and I ask, well, if the state isn't fulfilling that duty, then should they be assisted to return by organizations? Or if the state is fulfilling that duty, is it justified for the state to, for example, pay her to return to her country of origin? But my General argumentation is compatible with a range of views regarding states' rights. So if you think refugees are only those fleeing persecution, then my argument is only relevant for states that detain or violate the rights of refugees who are fleeing persecution. So, for example, I interviewed a man named Gatwitch, and he is of the Nuer tribe from South Sudan and he fled as a young boy to northern Sudan, to Khartoum, eventually made his way to Egypt, crossed over into Israel, and he was clearly persecuted in South Sudan. He would likely be persecuted if he returned back to South Sudan from Israel, and he was indeed persecuted when he went back. He's a a paradigm case of refugee, according to international law. If you think only people like Gatwich are refugees, then my argument asks, what should organizations do when Gatwich is detained by the Israeli government illegally? What should the Israeli government do if Gatwitch wants to return? Are they permitted to, for example, pay him to go back? So my argument is compatible with a range of theories, even though I think that the most plausible theory is that an individual is a refugee if they're fleeing their home country, regardless of why.
1: I see. Um, So um, as we've we've mentioned a few times now, um, the book deploys the, the tools of analytic moral philosophy in examining um testimonial data that you yourself have acquired in fieldwork um in, that is in interviews uh with uh, refugees that you've encountered um it's uh, a not a, it's, it's i'm sure many of uh, the listeners will understand this uh it's not a common thing for philosophy to in, involve fieldwork <laughs> unless we <laughs> unless we deploy a very expansive sense of fieldwork like you know twin earth uh, examples count as fieldwork work. Uh, we don't want to do that uh so this raises um uh um you yeah, know the question you know just i'm sure uh some listeners curiosity has been uh has been um uh, uh stimulated by this can you tell us a little bit just you know about the the interviews you've conducted and you know there's some Uh, moments in the book where you uh, describe um, sort of a a couple of cases where you you re-encounter somebody in in some other part of the world from where you first encountered them and you are able to interview them after sort of running into them in a market and things. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of your project?
0: Yeah. So I began the project as a political science study as a, a graduate student in Israel. And I interviewed some refugees who were considering returning home. Uh, some of the refugees I worked with uh, professionally, um, and I was I became good friends with them over the course of several years. Um, and I just wanted to learn, you know, what their experiences were in Israel. And then later, I, when I uh, went to South Sudan, I managed to get in touch with uh, some of them. So I interviewed um, a young man, changed his name for for confidentiality. Uh, I'll call him a ball. Um, And I first met him in Jerusalem. Um, And I later, just when I was in South Sudan, uh, I happened to arrive about a week or two before the Civil War broke out. And so to interview individuals who had gone back from Israel, I went to the internally displaced persons camp, one of the camps. And I was just walking down the market inside the camp and I ran into the ball again. Uh, And it was, we hadn't seen each other in years. Um, And I asked him how he was doing, how he returned home, why he returned back to his uh, original village. Um, And then I could ask him again, you know, now that you returned home, how are your expectations changed? Did you expect South Sudan to be the way it was? Because he hadn't lived in South Sudan since he was a small boy. He'd grown up in Ethiopia. Um, And he explained to me that he was fairly happy he returned back. He was obviously upset that there was civil war, but he felt that he had made the right decision in returning from Israel back to South Sudan, despite his life being much worse in many regards. Um, He didn't have access to employment. He didn't have access to a stable shelter, to reliable food, but he felt that he wanted to live in relative freedom in South Sudan rather than Israel. Uh, Later, I ended up going to Ethiopia to interview individuals who had fled Um, And he actually had fled, surprisingly, uh, around the same time that I had left South Sudan for Ethiopia. Um, And we saw each other again years later, and he was still very satisfied with his decision uh, to return to South Sudan, even though he had now fled to Ethiopia. And I think that these sorts of interviews are important because if we want to ask questions like, is it justified to help someone repatriate? It's important to not only know whether their decision is informed at the time they repatriate, uh, whether it's coerced or not, or how it's coerced, but also how they feel later down the line. And um, This is part of sort of a broader claim that when you help someone obtain some given end, when you help them return to their country of origin, or even potentially access some types of medical interventions, it's important to try to determine whether or not the fact that they consent now indicates that they will be more or less satisfied with their decision years later. Um, and he's an example of someone who feels he was satisfied with his decision years later. I interviewed other individuals who felt very differently. I interviewed um, another man, got Bial, and he was very happy he had returned, even when Civil War broke out. Um, I met him in the IDP camp in Juba. But then I met him again when he fled uh, to Kenya and I asked him, well, now are you are you happy still with your decision? And he says, no, now I really regret my decision. Now that I've fled, I fled, I wish I hadn't really returned at all from Israel. It would have been better to be in detention in Israel rather than be a refugee in Kenya. Uh, so I think fieldwork can help bring to light people's experiences over a longer period of time. And if we think that accounting for people's experiences over a longer period of time are important for determining what sorts of policies are justified, then these types of interviews can be really crucial for that project.
1: Right. And do you take it as I I I, I think I know the answer to this question, that um the kind of field work that you've engaged in is what uh enables you um to think through um the kind of you know, messy uh, um uh, uh, issues concerning, you know, actual policy intervention. So one of the things that's kind of remarkable uh, and refreshing I found about the book is that uh, at the end of every chapter contains a, a pretty, you know, detailed and, and always very insightful set of actual policy recommendations about, you know, what the what you know what moral decency requires. Uh, uh, of states and agencies and people and agents and the rest?
0: Yeah, so I think interviewing a range of individuals, it brings to light a range of dilemmas. And in resolving those dilemmas, always accounting for the actual facts on the ground, we can produce more relevant policy recommendations. So for example, I interviewed a lot of refugees in different countries who were misinformed prior to their repatriation. They didn't right. receive information for example on the extent of medical care, on access to food security and so forth. And I think that but but each bit of information was a little different. So some people didn't have access to information that they could have had access to if someone had just given them information from the World Bank or from Doctors Without Borders. There's a fairly straightforward solution and a philosophically uninteresting solution, but an important policy solution. And other people felt misinformed, not because anyone failed to tell them specific facts, but because there was nothing anyone really could tell them that would express what it precisely was like to live in rural South Sudan. So most people I interviewed had not lived in South Sudan for years. A large percentage had left us small children. Some were born outside of South Sudan They had never lived there at all. And people told them, if you go back, it's going to be more rural than what you're used to in Kampala and Cairo and Tel Aviv. And you can tell someone what it's like living in a rural area in the north of South Sudan, but to actually go back and experience it, that's information that is extremely difficult to understand until you've actually been there. So that was a different type of of misinformation. And the policy solution for that type of misinformation can't be the same solution as misinformation regarding facts about clinics and food security. So for that type of misinformation, refugees need to actually experience life in their country of origin prior to making a fully informed decision. And in those cases, I recommend states allow people to repatriate, but then give them the option of again returning to the host country if they feel that it wasn't the right decision after having experienced life in their country of origin. So having a range of interviews really captured the range of dilemmas and made me realize that policy recommendations need to be really sensitive to these sorts of nuanced distinctions.
1: Fantastic. Um, so one of the um, central, I guess the the the, the, the leading and, uh, for that reason, I think um, uh, the, the leading and I think most obvious sort of moral dilemma that arises in this unique context of repatriation has to do with something you've already mentioned. Um, it seems that in lots of cases, um, a refugee's interest in repa- repatriation um, is coerced um, in some sense of that term. Uh, the decision to pursue repatriation is often made under some kind of duress or there's some kind of um, comparison among the options in which um, somebody is not uh, able to to choose in a way that we would call fully autonomous or uh, um, uh, uh, even free. Um, so I guess this raises, again, the, one of the leading uh, questions, um, whether agencies seeking to assist with repatriation are acting morally when they... Are helping somebody um, uh, achieve some end that that person has adopted only because they're in morally unacceptable uh, circumstances that ordinarily, in analogous con- in analogous contexts, we would think sort of uh, make it unable for them to make a free or autonomous choice. Can you tell us a little bit about that main uh, sort of kind of moral dilemma? Yeah.
0: So it's worth pointing out that a lot of organizations claim to only be helping with voluntary returns. So in Kenya for example, the UN has special help desks and they interview each refugee they claim to and they claim to only help refugees who seem to be making at least a somewhat voluntary decision. On in Israel the NGOs involved in repatriation similarly claimed to only help refugees whose returns seem voluntary. And the logic behind that was refugees who are making a voluntary decision can give their voluntary consent to the risks involved in return. And so helping them return is ethical. Um, But obviously, a lot of people have noted and I noticed in my own interviews that people who return home, they often return due to coercion. So 37 of the individuals who I interviewed, they went back from Israel to avoid detention. Uh, 14 because they feared that they would be deported. This is out of uh, a sample of 128 refugees who returned to South Sudan. So many of them were essentially coerced by the Israeli government into accepting a plane ticket from an NGO to return home. But just because refugees are coerced into their decision, I don't think that means the NGOs acted in a morally impermissible manner. In a range of cases. It's perfectly possible to give your consent to someone for a particular service, even though you're giving your consent due to coercion. And often the person acts completely acceptably in helping you obtain that service, even if you're coerced into your decision. So for example, imagine that somebody says that they will kill me unless I go into a bank and take out $500. And I go into the bank and I tell the bank teller, I need to take out $500 or I'll definitely be killed. Now, assuming I will in fact be killed if I don't hand over that $500, the bank teller should probably give me the money. She shouldn't think, well, you're coerced into your decision, so I won't give you that $500 and watch you be shot. And the fact that I'm coerced into my decision of anything, it gives her an even stronger reason to hand me over that $500. And if refugees are in positions where they're struggling with severe malnutrition or lifelong detention, and they say, I want to go back home, there's no way I can be free from this detention and this malnutrition, this lack of health care. NGOs have a case for helping them go back. So the fact that it's involuntary, that's not sufficient to conclude that helping them return is impermissible. But in cases where helping a refugee repatriate contributes to government coercion and government rights violations, then there's a stronger case for refusing to help with repatriation. So in cases where the government is essentially only detaining refugees so that they repatriate. And the only way a refugee can repatriate is via the UN or an NGO because the UN and NGO has access to funds to pay for their transport back or because they know how to arrange the travel documentation so that refugees can actually re-enter their home country. So in cases where these refugees can only return because these NGOs and they're only detained so that they go back home, NGOs have good reason to not provide repatriation, because if they don't provide repatriation, then this will improve refugees' rights in the host country. And in those sorts of cases, NGOs are acting impermissibly if they help with, with repatriation. And that leaves some very difficult cases. So in some cases, if a given refugee repatriates, so a given refugee might be detained, and if she repatriates, then that will open up a bed in a detention cell that will free up a bed in a detention cell and then the government will detain a new refugee who would otherwise be free. Then there's the question, well then should the NGO help the refugee repatriate given that this contributes to the detention of another refugee? And in such cases I think even there there might be a case for helping with repatriation depending on how negative the impact is on the rights of other refugees. So my main claim is that coerced repatriation, it can be ethical to help with such return but not if it contributes to the very coercion that encourages refugees to repatriate.
1: Um, and, uh, can I ask, just how common do you think it is, uh, given your your work in the area? How common do you think it is that uh, NGO repatriation assistance does contribute to um, state coercion in the host countries?
0: So, in a global in a global context, there just isn't enough data yet to demonstrate just how much it causally contributes. So we have some data. So for example, we know that in Kenya, the government's intention in closing various refugee camps over the years has partly been to encourage refugees to return via the UN. Um, And there's some evidence that politicians' motives are really just to encourage return. And if those are the motivations of policymakers in Kenya, who are denying refugees access to food security in camps and the right to work, then that's pretty strong evidence that the UN should not be helping with repatriation, assuming that this will, in fact, encourage the government to improve refugees' rights. And then you can't know that unless you systematically stop helping with repatriation, see if things improve. If it doesn't, perhaps it's justified to continue helping with repatriation. But as far as I know, the UN and NGOs haven't really engaged in that type of systematic checking, the extent that their actions contribute to government coercion. Um, There are also cases where, so in Israel, there was no real way for the government to assist refugees to repatriate to South Sudan prior to 2011, because South Sudan was part of Sudan, it was an enemy state, it was very difficult to help people return. So there was an NGO that managed to arrange travel documents so that refugees could return. Now, the minute they did that, the Israeli government had a committee meeting where they stated that it was now possible for refugees to return home, and this NGO had demonstrated as such, and maybe they should start thinking about pressuring them to go home. So that's that's also good evidence that helping with repatriation contributes to government coercion. But again, we need more, more rigorous, fine-grained data to see if there is that causal contribution.
1: Excellent. So, um, just to ask one more question about this, because the you know the the interesting um, it's interesting to see how all the moral complexities sort of start sort of crowding in. Um, so, to go back to the 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 bank case uh, that you you raised as an analogy, somebody is uh, threatening your life and lets you go withdraw five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said it would you know certainly the the bank teller shouldn't say, "Well, I'm not going to give you the five hundred dollars because I know your choice is coerced, and in fact um it seems like um the bank teller has even more reason to give you the five hundred dollars if she knows that it's being your 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 choice to withdraw it is being coerced in that particular way um It also seems though so that um in that case um the bank teller has a has some kind of has a moral duty as an obligation to call the police officers right uh to yeah. let to let the police know uh that you're um you're being coerced in this way or threatened in this way and i know that in 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 part of your account of this is that the um uh the organizations that are helping with repatriation um uh have to uh contribute some of their resources uh to um finding out uh whether their efforts in fact are contributing in, in negative ways to uh the coercion or the coercive policies uh on the part of the host states, um, which of course creates the dilemma that <laughs> you know that means fewer resources for helping, you know, people repatriate. Yeah. Uh can you tell us a little bit about that side of the uh, of the dilemma?
0: Right. So There are simple cases where an NGO can just help with help help encourage change in the government policy without investing a great deal of resources, and there it seems really clear they should do that. Then there is this dilemma that the more resources they invest in trying to stop coercion, the fewer resources they'll have to help refugees repatriate if they fail to end coercion. There's still good reasons though to invest more resources in trying to stop coercion than if they were, for example. A private travel agent. So a private travel agent exists primarily to either make a profit or at the very least assist individuals to travel. That's its role. That's what it was created for. That's what people expect of it when they invest in the travel agent, when they go to the travel agent, when they buy a ticket from the travel agent. But a non-governmental organization, in particular a humanitarian organization, was created primarily to help obtain various humanitarian ends. And one obvious humanitarian end is ensuring that refugees are genuinely protected in a safe country. So when people donate to the NGO, they expect the NGO to fight for these sorts of ends. When people volunteer for the NGO, they expect this from the NGO. When refugees turn to the NGO, they expect the NGO to do as much as possible to ensure that refugees' rights are protected. And so such an NGO has a weightier reason to invest more of its resources in trying to end coercion against refugees and fewer of its resources in repatriation alone. In other words, repatriation should be a last resort given that this doesn't in fact protect refugees in the vast majority of cases. So that's my case for investing more money in trying to end government coercion trying to lobby for the end of detention of refugees. But there is there does still remain this dilemma and there is still going to be the question of precisely what percentage of your budget you invest in trying to bring about change and how much you leave over for repatriation in the event that the change doesn't come about.
1: Right. Um, and I guess maybe uh, one ramification of, of of your view here could be, I suppose, um, well, let me see if you agree with this, that... Um, there might be uh, some moral reason for those of us who are academics with access to funding sources um, that, uh, for our academic work. Maybe part of the burden falls on academics to do the empirical work about what the impact of these uh, the, the operations of these uh, NGOs and other um, organizations helping with repatriation. Maybe, it's, maybe some of the burden falls on us as, as researchers to go and get the data.
0: Yeah, so I haven't really thought about the precise duties of researchers. I, I think I assume that if you're, so I'm in the UK where most of the funding comes from the government, which is right. from taxes. And there I think I have a very substantial duty to try to engage in research that helps someone, and <laughs> ideally the most vulnerable individuals. Right, And so then I would think that I would have some type of duty to try to research what happens to refugees after they repatriate, what refugees are experiences, the experiences of refugees prior to the repatriation. Then there's a question. I mean, so anyone, I haven't thought about this, just the top of my head, but I mean, anyone who's making money in some profession could donate money to research. Right. So then this is the broader question. Does everyone have an obligation to donate some of their salary to just gaining information? which can help establish whether certain interventions help the populations they claim to help. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much, I mean, because with research is the same thing. You can claim that we should invest more research in helping find out what occurs to vulnerable populations. And someone else might say, well, I mean, that's not, I'm a metaphysician. That's just not what I do. Why should I have an obligation to spend time researching these topics with someone who isn't in research at all, doesn't have an obligation to invest money making this research possible. I don't really know the answer to that. Um, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> I don't know the answer to it either, uh, but uh, we're in good company. Yeah. Um, so just one, more
0: thing about, just one more thing about that. So one yeah. of the advantages of researchers doing this is that there's less of a conflict of interest. So in medicine, right. whenever I'm like, if I'm like about to take some, some, any like medical intervention, and I, I go on Google Scholar and I look at the medical articles, I've always, I always like it when it's research been done where it's solely funded by like a government body or a university. Because I know there isn't a conflict of interest, so I don't want to read about whether or not there's dangers in almonds if the research has been funded by the almond industry. And I think one of the risks of research on refugee repatriation is that some of the research is being conducted by the organizations that help with repatriation. by the governments that have an interest in more refugees repatriating. And if more researchers get involved in repatriation research uh, studies, then there's less of that conflict of interest. So I think that we need to look towards the ideal of research in medicine and apply the same kind of rules and the same kind of ethical guidelines to research on migration more generally.
1: Yeah, that sounds right to me uh, for what that's worth. Um, Well, let me – I'm having all kinds of sort of off-the-cuff thoughts about this, which I'm going to just suppress for the moment so that we can talk more about the book. Um, So let's get back to um, one of the things you have also mentioned uh, in your opening uh, remarks, which were the ways in which repatriation efforts can be driven uh, – the the, the desire to repatriate can be based in – Um, different kinds of misinformation. Uh, You're distinguished between sort of uh a the kind of misinformation that has sort of an, a sort of an omission element to it yeah. and the kind of misinformation that has a kind of um, almost sort of like the, the kind of information you need is not the kind of information you can get um, by description you need by acquaintance information you got to go live it um, but I take it that there are other kinds of cases where um, the misinformation takes the more ordinary kind like there's actually just you know misrepresenting of the facts that are known <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about how those different kinds of cases uh play out in your view
0: yeah so there's a lot of variation in how difficult it is to obtain information so some information is easy to obtain because it's already been obtained so if you look at world bank data on south sudan now there's data on employment rates on mortality rates on income security and so forth Uh, but there wasn't that data when i first began this research in 2010. There just wasn't data on the average income in what was then Southern Sudan, part of Sudan. Um, and so then there's this question, well, for the, e- for the data that's already available, there's an easy case to be made for NGOs and government officials just giving refugees this data. For data that's hard to gather though, there's the question of who has an obligation to gather that data. For humanitarian organizations, we might claim they have a duty to gather that data as part of their general duty of care. So just like a medical organization has a duty to gather data on the risks of its interventions because it has a duty of care towards its patients, a humanitarian organization created to assist particular populations ought to gather data on the risks of the assistance it's providing to these populations. Then the government might claim it's not a humanitarian organization If refugees want to repatriate and there's no data on the risks, then why should the government invest money in finding out about these risks? That's refugees' responsibility. Some government agencies, I remember there was one civil servant I spoke to in Israel and he said, I'm just like a travel agent. I provide them a service of a free ticket, some cash in an envelope, assist them to get to the airport and arrive in Sudan and South Sudan, Eritrea. That's my job. My job is not to find information. And so so here's what I think about those cases. You might claim that we have a duty to find information, not only when we have a duty of care towards the individuals we're assisting, but whenever we have another general duty, which creates a duty to find information. So for example, if I have a car and I might run someone over, which is the case for everyone who has a car, I might have a general duty to check my brakes every once in a while to make sure that they're working properly. And therefore, I have a duty to find out about the brakes. I have a duty to know the information regarding the brakes in order to fulfill my general duty to make sure that I don't run anyone over. Now, if I'm selling you my car and I don't know about the faulty brakes and you buy the car, you might tell me, why didn't you tell me about the faulty brakes? You have no excuse for not telling me about the faulty brakes. You had a duty to find out about them derived from your duty to be a safe driver. So in other words, I had a duty to know that information, not to tell it to you, but because I should make sure that I'm a safe driver. But once I have that information, I therefore have a duty to tell you if it's pertinent to your decision to buy the car. And I think we can say something similar about government officials. It's generally accepted that states have general duties to ensure that major disasters abroad don't occur if they can under a certain cost. So If there's a tsunami in another country and a state can provide limited aid to help alleviate the effects of that tsunami, the state might have an obligation to do so. If there's famine in Ethiopia, a state might have an obligation to send aid to alleviate the famine and so forth. Now, in order for states to fulfill their general duties in global justice, they have a duty to find information about famine abroad, about civil war abroad, about tsunamis abroad. And so if refugees are in their own country and they're deciding to repatriate, Governments ought to tell refugees about this information, and they have a duty to tell refugees about this information, not because they have a duty to find information in order to tell refugees, but because they have a duty to know this information as part of their general duties in global justice. And once they have that information, they really ought to disclose it. And when governments don't have that information, it's not an excuse for them to say, well, we just didn't know, because they arguably have a duty to know based on their other general obligations in global justice. So it becomes a little bit more complicated when you're talking about governments. It's less clear cut, but I still think such a duty exists.
1: Yeah, that's that's com- that sounds compelling to me. And there are cases where it looks like there's some actual uh, dissembling uh, in some of these cases, where uh, people who the home state hasn't, um, you know, might have some motivation in seeing repatriate. Um, uh, the The host state um, either by withholding information that they have or by spinning um, uh, more positively uh, some information that they have about the safety and the um, uh, the resources that will be made available uh, if the um, person repatriates. Um, those seem I guess more much more clear cut. I mean those those are just cases of just wrongdoing,
0: yeah, yeah. they're cases of wrongdoing and they're and they're especially egregious. and I think that. They're often ignoring discussions on immigration. So like I said before, when we think about immigration, we often think of states using force to encourage individuals to leave or not enter. But using force is very expensive. It involves armed guards. It involves proper logistics. It involves getting a van ready to fill the van up with migrants who are then against their will brought to the airport. And fu- That's very expensive. And I think states often use a cheaper way of controlling immigration, which is just to provide misinformation or lack of information to those considering returning home. I definitely saw that in interviews in Israel. And amongst those who had already returned, a lot of refugees were told that South Sudan is a different country now. There's independence, which is all true, that there's housing available, that there are medical clinics available, that there's jobs available, which, which was not really true. And refugees returned as a result. It was an irreversible choice. And that encouraged a lot of people to repatriate who wouldn't have otherwise returned. And it led to widespread malnutrition amongst those who returned. It led to a significant percentage of the children who returned to die within the first couple of years. And so I don't know if it's as bad as forced deportation, but it's certainly a form of Involuntary repatriation that should be emphasized more when we're discussing government policy.
1: Right. Um, so to to pick up on on, on that thought, uh, you do have a chapter about cases where um, host um, states, uh, their governments, have adopted policies of um, uh, policies by which. Refugees are offered financial incentives uh, in exchange for repatriating. So they're given some money uh, if they do if, if they would um, uh, go back home. Um, uh, th- that sounds to me morally very, very suspicious. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about those cases, though?
0: Yeah, so I think not all cases are necessarily morally suspicious. So if a refugee is returning to a very safe country, and they receive money to do so, then it's acceptable, assuming sure. that they're fully informed about the risks, they're not coerced into their decision and so forth. But then there are difficult cases where an individual is voluntarily returning, let's assume, they don't necessarily fear detention or deportation if they remain. But, and this actually happens. Um, but they turn up to an immigration ministry office, Um, they say, I want to return home. Uh, So, for example, I interviewed someone named Gatwak, and he was nervous about returning home uh, because of his ethnic identity. He was originally from an area near Juba. um, And he was nervous about returning home because he didn't have any family back home. He didn't have any savings, really. And so he feared food security. But he went to the Ministry of Interior and he just was asking a few questions about its immigration status. And they said, look, if you want, I can offer you $1,500 to go back to South Sudan. This was in 2012. Uh, and so he and he was told, you know, here, you can have the money at the airport. We're going to give it to you in a white envelope at the airport the moment you, you go on the plane. But but sign here on this contract promising that you're going to leave Israel and that you're not going to return to Israel, that you'll remain in South Sudan he literally signed a contract, got to the airport, got his money returned back. Now, why is that disturbing? And I think one of the reasons it's disturbing is that it's similar to what legal theorists call an unconscionable contract. So certain contracts are deemed so unconscionable that no judge would enforce it. So if I lend you money and I say that if you don't pay me back, I'm going to cut off your arm and you sign that contract, no judge is going to uphold that contract. Right. And one of the reasons no judge might uphold that contract is because even if you consent to a contract like that now, you'll probably change your mind about having entered that contract if you can't pay me back. And there might be a limit to what you can do now regarding your future self. That's one argument against such unconscionable contracts being enforced. Another argument is just that taxpayers shouldn't be forced to support judges who enforce these types of horrific contracts. Even if you privately think it's justified to enter the contract, Third party shouldn't be enforcing it or forced to enforce (laughs) it. Um, And I think there's something similar going on with payments to refugees. So when Gatlock returned to Juba, he was homeless. I met him on this concrete patio outside of a police station in Juba. He had no shelter, savings, no job skills, no family connections, as he predicted. He relied on a little bit of food and medicine that people would bring him sort of as an act of charity. Um, when the Civil War broke out, I lost contact with him and there is a chance that he was killed based on my interviews I had with other people. Um, and he couldn't return to Israel because he had signed that contract and he just didn't have the money to access Israeli territory anymore. And I think that when he signed that contract, when he got that money, it was enforced by the state and all taxpayers were forced to take part in this unconscionable contract. Right. And that's why it shouldn't be issued in the future in such cases.
1: You know there are, you know, there's as I'm sure you're aware, as I, I know you're aware, um, you know there is a there's a great deal of um, literature among in, in moral philosophy about how, you know, basically about how money deforms the morality of lots of situations, <laughs> right? So think about the stuff on markets and things that shouldn't be for sale. I wonder again, just now, just thinking out loud along with you, uh, I wonder if there aren't some sort of the, the kinds of analogous. Um, Uh, Worries here that uh, even in cases where it looks as if um, the payment uh, to repatriate might not raise red flags of the kind of case you were just talking about, Um, uh, I guess part of what I meant when I say there's something suspicious in this is that I I, I worried that in in practice it would be um, offering uh, financial compensation in exchange for repatriation might be too often coupled with uh, morally unsavory motives for wanting refugees to repatriate? Do you think that that's, um, is that empirically borne out?
0: Um, so in some cases, a given ethnic group is paid money to repatriate and other ethnic groups are not. Right. So in the Israeli case, migrants and refugees who were from East Africa and to an extent West Africa as well were paid money but refugees who were from Myanmar, for example, were not given this money to repatriate. Now, in some ways, in some ways, this was like an advantage for some of the African refugees, in particular, the migrants who wanted to go home and suddenly got like yeah. all this money to start businesses and reinstitute their lives in various countries. And those from Myanmar didn't get any money. So they were kind of like advantaged in one sense. But right. the implication of that payment, was that African migrants and refugees were less desirable than refugees from other countries. And that message, whether implied or in some cases made explicit, is really demeaning to all African refugees, African refugees and migrants, and including citizens from the same country as those who are paid to leave. So some non-Jewish Ethiopian refugees were paid to go back to Ethiopia. I interviewed a woman who received tens of thousands of dollars to return to Ethiopia. She, she received more money from the Israeli government and various sources than any other refugee I interviewed, and she was very pleased to receive that money. It really benefited her. But there's something demeaning about the government yeah. saying, you know, you're from Ethiopia, we don't want you. Oh, but you're not from Ethiopia, then you can stay. That's demeaning to a lot of citizens as well. Uh, you had something similar in Japan. Japan offered money to migrants from Latin America who agreed to return, but didn't offer money to migrants from european countries to return and there was this implied message if you're from latin america we don't want you in our country we don't want you to stay and that can be demeaning to those who do choose to stay so i think that the motives behind the payments can entail a certain message that harms others who do not benefit from these payments
1: right good i I guess that that's that that helps me to sort of um uh, put my finger more firmly on what what, what I, I guess what I was sort of vaguely concerned with was the you know, the payments might help this particular person repatriate and the payment might um, uh, be used effectively and the person might you know experience a wonderful life having returned uh, to his or her home country and use the, the 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 financial payment well and the rest. But I guess the, yeah, that's really uh, that that's where I, I'm concerned morally that it, it does look like it's um uh in in certain cases it's going to be connected to a, a, a kind of demeaning message about general the, you know people from that country in some more general sense among the that, that will resonate with the home population, and that might be morally problematic. Does that sound right? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Okay. Um so uh children are often um implicated in all kinds of ways uh in uh migration and immigration and refugees uh, and the rest. And so you've got a a chapter later in the book um, about the special kinds of uh, moral questions that arise once we recognize that uh, lots of these cases often involve um, children. Um, Can you tell us about uh, those special kinds of uh, considerations?
0: Right. So one of my most surprising empirical finding was that a significant number of children of those in my sample died within the first two years. So of my sample of 48 children, five of them died within the first two years. That's a very high percentage of those um, who I spoke with. And more importantly, the children most at risk were those I would never have been able to speak with because they were in extremely insecure areas I couldn't reach or they didn't have any guardians. So I wouldn't have been able to speak with their guardians and meet their children. Uh, So it was very clear that returning was especially risky for children. And that raised a difficult question. So normally when we think about children's rights, we think that parents have certain obligations towards their children. And in particular, they have obligations to be in certain places at certain times to protect their children. So if a parent has a child who's extremely ill and it's very clear that they're very ill for a long time, we tend to think the parent has an obligation to go to the hospital to be in a hospital at a particular time to make sure that the child has proper treatment. We also tend to think more generally that parents have an obligation to make sure that their children are at school during during school hours or obtain some type of education during the day. With migration and refugees, there's the question, do parents have an obligation to live in a certain region or certain country in order to ensure that their children are safe? So I interviewed one family And they were living in Israel and they decided to return to South Sudan and they had three children and one of their sons died of malaria shortly after they repatriated. And they received assistance to return from an NGO. Now should the NGO have helped this particular family return, knowing that the risks of malaria were substantial? knowing or they ought to have known that treatment is not often free in South Sudan. Even when it is free, it often isn't as effective as it could be. Now, you might think they shouldn't have helped this family return because it would place their children at risk, just like we don't help families avoid medical treatment because this means their children will be harmed. We don't encourage families to stay home from school. We shouldn't encourage families to return to unsafe countries. But on the other hand, you might think there are certain parental rights we believe exist. Parents should be able to live where they want to live if they feel this is best for their children. Often refugees have good reasons for repatriating. They feel that it will help their children bond to their original culture. They feel that they want their children to grow up in their country of citizenship to benefit from the various perks of being a citizen, such as accessing some type of education, even if not ideal. And so I've generally come to the conclusion that we should not permit parents, or at least we should discourage parents from moving to countries with their children if the risks that this places on their children are comparable to the sort of risks we don't allow parents to take within the state. So if a parent has a child that's 11 years old, and they're moving to a village in South Sudan that doesn't have universal education, and the parents do not have savings, to pay for their children's education, then we should discourage or even prevent such parents from moving to that village if parents are not permitted to withdraw their children from school at the age of 11 within the state. Hmm. And so, and I think the justification for that is simply that states do have certain obligations towards those who reside within their territory. And one of those obligations is to ensure that children within their territory are safe. And often the only way to do that is to prevent or discourage parents from moving to countries where these children will be unsafe. So that's yeah. the conclusion I've reached about, uh, this particular topic.
1: Right. Um, again, that sounds totally sensible to me. Um, uh, but Molly, you've been, you've been very generous with your time and it's been really, um, uh, fabulous. Uh, it's been great to talk about uh, your book. Um, Uh, So last question, Um, what's your next project?
0: So I have two broad topics I'm working on. So one is on the subject of consent. So the question of whether consent for refugees is valid and whether it ought to be taken as a reason to help refugees repatriate, that's a broader topic on coercion. I mean, there's this broader question of when you should accept someone's consent as valid. What is right. the result of background coercion? It affects not only refugees, it affects often women who are living in societies where their basic security can't be met, and so choose to marry as a result. These women are sometimes marrying in order to avoid insecurity. So there's the question, well, have they really consented to marriage, given that's the result of a coercion? There's a question within the literature on organ donations, if a person sells their organs because they'll suffer from malnutrition if they don't, is their consent to sell that organ valid? And so I'm trying to answer this broader question on consent and related questions on consent. So that's one project I'm working on. Another project is related to refugees. um, And I call this project Expanding Refuge. And I want to explore what it means when we claim someone is a refugee or how should states relate to refugees and which refugees should they be providing asylum to. So within the legal the legal theory within uh, international law, refugees are only those who are fleeing persecution, at least within a lot of states. Um, Within the African Union, within Latin America, refugees are broader than that. That includes those who are fleeing general violence and insecurity. But there's a very strong argument for claiming a refugee is anyone whose basic security and liberties are undermined. That includes those who are suffering from malnutrition, those who are suffering from domestic violence, and so forth. And a lot of philosophers agree with that. They think we should expand the definition of who a refugee is and who states ought to give asylum to. But that has really difficult moral implications and dilemmas that haven't really been explored. So if refugees are anyone whose rights aren't protected in their home states, that might mean that the number of individuals who are refugees might be a substantial proportion of the world's population.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Right. And that that raises the question who has a duty to help these individuals live in other states if that's the only way they can obtain these basic rights? And more importantly, if a state simply just cannot afford to accept all individuals who are refugees, are they permitted to select those they provide asylum to and those they don't? And then how do they select the refugees? Do they select the refugees who are most at risk of being killed within the next year? Do they select refugees in a manner that maximizes the number of refugees they can provide asylum to, even if it means not helping those most at risk. And so this is a project I'm trying to grapple with at the moment.
1: Yeah, I suppose, just to, to pick up on that, I suppose that there's some, I don't know if it's a conclusive moral case, but there would be some moral case saying, like, well, under those circumstances, you know, if we've got to choose, maybe we get to choose the people who um, uh, need asylum or, or need a, a host country who are most likely to be able to succeed, which which means the people who aren't most vulnerable should be given the most benefit, which right, right. looks like a warped moral conclusion, right?
0: <laughs> right. We wouldn't want to just select those who will, you know, provide as much tax dollars to the government if it means not helping those who are significantly worse off, at least in some cases.
1: Yeah, that seems right. Well, this is all fascinating. Um, uh, Molly, I just want to thank you for your time today. And thank you for writing such a, such a fabulous and, and thought provoking book.
0: Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to this podcast. It was really an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah, great. Um, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, I remind you that the, we were talking about uh, Molly Gerver's fantastic book, uh, The Ethics and Practice of Refugee Repatriation, uh, which has recently been published by the University of Edinburgh Press. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.